I'll be reading from Luke 11. One day, Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak, and when the demon was gone, the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed, but some of them said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Others, trying to test Jesus, demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He knew their thoughts, so he said, any kingdom divided by civil war is doomed. A family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You say, I am empowered by Satan. But if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I am empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I am casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man like Satan is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert searching for rest. But when it finds none, it says, I will return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds that its former home is all swept and in order. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. As he was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came, and the breast that nursed you. Jesus replied, But even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Hi, folks. Good to be with you. If we've not met before, my name is Luke, and I'm on our pastoral team. I'll be sharing today from the Gospel of Luke. We're in and out of the Gospel of Luke uh, for the last number of years, actually, and we're finding ourselves today in Luke chapter 11. So you can open up your Bible to there if you have one around. I was hiking recently with a friend, and we got talking about our waistlines, which turned into talking about uh, the 40-day season ahead of Easter, known in some Christian traditions as Lent. And that begins this coming Wednesday. For many, those 40 days before Easter is about taking time and taking stock of what's going on inside. A bit like turning an old backpack inside out and having a really good sort through. The 40 days of Lent echo Jesus' 40 days in the desert, where he fasted and prayed and emerged with a unique kind of victory through reliance and obedience. And Jesus' 40 days echoed the 40 days of the ancient Israelite people spent in the desert when they struggled with reliance and obedience on God. And one of the things we see between Jesus' 40 days in the desert and the ancient Israelites' 40 years is that where Israel failed to be consistently reliant and obedient, Jesus was. Today, Lent still carries themes of reliance and obedience. You could say that it's an intentionally deserted time, a time to listen, a time to reflect, even fast, asking God to turn our hearts inside out. Anyway, my friend and I were both admitting on that hike 
that fasting during this season had at times become more about the dietary benefits, about the waistline, than actually giving attention to prayer and scripture. My friend typically fasts beer, but he wasn't sure if his focus on God had grown so much as he'd simply stopped drinking beer for 40 days. Similarly, I'd given up sweets, but agreed that though that took discipline, I didn't always see that attention turned over to God. And so that time and attention filled up with other things. As we climbed the mountain, our discussion turned from where we were going to who we were becoming and how that 40-day road to Easter would contribute this year to our growth as Christians. And as a bonus, our waistlines did shrink a little bit on that hike, at least until we stopped for fast food on our way home. In the passage that we just heard that Janet read for us, we also find Jesus going somewhere. This time, he's not going into the desert, but is on his way to Jerusalem and ultimately to his death. And we might notice that here in Luke 11 and 12, Jesus doesn't seem to be playing around, as we find some of his most confrontational words in this stretch of Luke's gospel. Not unlike uh, old backpacks filled with all kinds of stuff, Jesus is turning hearts inside out. And he does so because he cares about where people are going, about who they are becoming. His journey isn't just up to Jerusalem, but inward to the very heart of the human need for renewal. In this episode, Jesus has just healed someone possessed by an evil spirit, and a debate begins around him. Some say Jesus is himself possessed, working a kind of magic to push other demons around. Others want more proof that Jesus is on God's side, and we might relate to wanting more evidence or assurance before we throw our lot in with Jesus entirely. But at the core of these debates is the main question of all four Gospels. Who is Jesus? As in this story, over again in the Gospels, Jesus is described not as a magician, not as just a prophet, not just as a swell guy, but somehow God living next door. And that question is also handed to us in this time before Easter. Who is Jesus? And what sway does he have in our 21st century lives? Can we trust him enough to sink our hope in him entirely? Well, the Gospels present us with this question over and over again. And just like those in this story, we can choose to discredit him, to mistrust him, or do something else entirely, dare to take a risk on him. As usual in the Gospels, the accusations levied at Jesus, they don't stand up. When some say he's possessed by an evil spirit, Jesus responds with vivid imagery. And his response is that any country in the throes of civil war is not in a position of strength, but weakness. We're hearing this week about power struggles and invasion around the world. And those kinds of geopolitical issues were just as present in the ancient world as they are today. So Jesus uses that language 
to describe God's maneuvers against the dark powers standing behind all evil. For Jesus, this was no civil war, but more like an invasion which had established a devastating beachhead in territory occupied by evil. The first domino had been pushed, and now the rest were falling, one by one. Because Jesus was leaving a trail of light in his wake, it made little sense that he was on the side of darkness. So all the healing and all the life flashing out from Jesus was sign that God had actually arrived on the scene, had already won this decisive battle, and the victory was spilling out wherever Jesus went. And that's also what Jesus is getting at with the image of, we could say, breaking and entering, of overpowering the strong man, no matter the fortification. Jesus had already won a kind of victory over evil and power, and so Satan's lackeys didn't have a chance when Jesus turns up from place to place. So this whole interaction seems to be about power and authority. First, Jesus' power is obvious by his casting out of a demon, something that we're told he does all the time, uh, just as he does healings. But Jesus also speaks with real authority, and no one has much of a response in this episode. So we see this often in the Gospels, Jesus acting and speaking with a weight that no one else can pretend to have around him. An example of this comes next because we then hear some of Jesus' heaviest words. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me. Anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. Other translations say something like, whoever doesn't gather with me scatters, which might better help us understand Jesus' meaning. If Jesus can muscle out evil powers, sickness, darkness, he must be light because darkness is only evicted by light. And if the evil powers are scattering, it's because the light has come into the world, not another shade of darkness. And there's also a sense here that Jesus is so bright that everything else seems as darkness. The Gospels, all four of them, uh, constantly emphasize the massive difference between Jesus and everyone else, a truly strange figure. So though Jesus is, in the sense, the man next door, at the same time, the gap between Jesus and the rest is incredible, like the gap between humanity and God to begin with, which is a bit of a hint and brings us back to that key question, who is this Jesus? Now, maybe one question that we might be asking is, is how does this powerful, all or nothing Jesus, demanding Jesus, we could even say, square with his depiction as a kind, utterly inclusive teacher? Well, the answer is it does, and it doesn't. Of course, it is unavoidable in the Gospels that Jesus is a dramatically inclusive figure, as he really does welcome anyone. But it's also clear that he welcomes and deals with everyone on his terms. Here is someone 
we're introduced to in the Gospels, who is somehow open to anyone, very often people that we're not open to. And yet that welcome is not a kind of cold or ambivalent tolerance. Instead, Jesus has such gravity, such a roominess about him, that he's able and willing to take people in, so to speak, in a way that others don't have the capacity to take people in. So Jesus, as we read the Gospels, doesn't deal so much in tolerance as he does in an unlimited capacity for the reception and renewal of every person he comes across. And that's where the saying comes from, that Jesus loves people so much to take them as they are, but too much to leave them as they are. That vision of Jesus is something that we still struggle with today. His capacity for both outrageous inclusivity and, at the same time, exacting exclusivity. And we struggle probably because Jesus has been relegated to the self-help section of the bookstore in our time. We want acceptance, but not the being receiving us. We want love, but not the source of love. We want all the goodness which leaps from the depths of God's character, but we tend to ignore that we ourselves, as beings, have our very beginnings and endings in God's life itself. It's a confusion that leaves us frustrated and overwhelmed because we tend to suspect and mistrust authority, which we all have grounds for. Everybody has a story. But part of getting to know Jesus is coming to that unavoidable impasse where we have to ask what authority, if any, lies beyond human authority, our authority. If God's real, how much capacity does God have? How much, therefore, leeway does God get? And at times we discover that we haven't made much room for God collectively, even personally. One of the things that we're discovering in the pandemic is that we get very anxious when human power structures fail us. And that anxiety might actually be telling, driving us to unnecessary division. Whose capacity are we trusting when the going gets tough? These are difficult questions, but, but if we don't ask them, we'll only dabble in a kind of consumer Christianity, roaming the supermarkets of religion, kind of curating our relationship to the being at the center of the universe. And when we put it like that, putting God in the self-help section seems pretty silly. Yet we've probably all done it. And in a way, that's what Jesus is getting at and why things begin to heat up through Luke 11 and 12. For Jesus, it's dangerous for human hearts to dabble in self-reliance, trusting ourselves as ultimate authorities. All of this then comes to a bit of a head with Jesus' next strange picture. If an evil spirit is evicted from a house, leaving it empty, it will come back with more spirits and fill the house again. It's hard to understand Jesus' meaning here, but he probably isn't talking about the possession of individual people. It's more like he's speaking to the history of Israel of his time. 
They had been trying to sweep the house, to clean up, but for all the efforts of spring cleaning, they lacked God's occupancy in the center of their community. Enter through the Gospels as we hear Jesus. God come to his people, the presence and light ready to fill it all up. And yet Jesus is rejected at every turn. So Jesus' meaning here might be that it doesn't matter how much spring cleaning happens. If they're not willing to welcome the owner of the house, the light of the world, darkness will always creep back in because the only thing that evicts darkness is light. So going a step further, for Jesus, it's dangerous for human hearts to dabble in self-reliance because it leads, ultimately, to self-destruction. And we'll hear more about that in Luke 11 and 12 as we move through. So part of what we're hearing in Luke's gospel is that there is something about Jesus which is essential in a way that nothing and no one else is essential. And there's been a lot of debate about what's essential these past two years. And we're learning that things aren't as simple as we once thought. What's essential to one is not essential to another and so on. And so we're asking what, what we need in order to be healthy persons, to be healthy communities. What factors determine what is essential and non-essential? Well, we've all found ourselves in those passionate discussions, haven't we? And even though that's been hard, it's not been all bad. Communities asking what's essential to be healthy persons and groups is a good question to ask, so long as, certainly as Christians, we discuss, discuss respectfully and graciously as Jesus' people, ensuring that the needs of others go ahead of our own wants. As Christians, we should be cautious about demand-making when it comes to having our wants met. That question of what is essential, really, is, is what Jesus is getting at here. Not should the gyms be open or should we be able to have a party, not those kinds of essentials, but the question of what or who is absolutely essential to the life and death of a human being. Which brings back this question again of who is Jesus? in the Gospels. In Luke 11 and 12, Jesus shares these warnings through various pictures of people of his time to stop going the way that they're going, a way of self-reliance towards self-destruction. But you only warn someone of a terrible trajectory if you care about them. You only risk offense if the risk of their direction is greater. Jesus' warnings echo not only to us personally today, but also to our world in the throes of darkness and chaos. How long will we turn from one shade of darkness to another, hoping it will shed a little more light on the path? How long will we anxiously clutter our lives, making little to no room for the one who made us, the truly essential being at the center of all creation? At this point in the episode, Jesus' critics fall silent because of the authority of his presence. But then a woman shouts out how blessed Jesus' mother must have been to produce such an impressive son. Maybe a kind of uh, standing ovation, some would say. 
But notice that Jesus stays laser-focused. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. As some have put it, what Jesus is looking for, what God is looking for, is not applause, but trust which leads to reliance and obedience. Jesus doesn't need a standing ovation. If he is who he says he is, he's designed the hands that are clapping. What he cares about here, what he cares about still now, is that we quit dabbling in various shades of darkness, pretending we can manage to make things a little brighter on our own. It's moments like this in the Gospels which remind us that Jesus seems less interested in our amazement or applause or appraisal of him and more interested in whether or not we'll give him full occupancy, you could say. And in that sense, Jesus can feel at times almost like a dangerously welcoming figure. He doesn't just take on disciples. He takes us in to his own unending being. He doesn't just want a corner of my heart. He wants the whole thing. So back to that image of a backpack. Once we've turned the backpack inside out, what's going to fill it again? Bad habits can be replaced with good habits, but habits won't heal us. Habits didn't imagine the stars. Habits won't be there when we die. Christian growth, maturity, is not so much about hard work as it is about heart work. Letting Jesus turn our hearts inside out. And when he does, we don't have to worry about what tumbles out, even if it frightens us. Remember, in this passage, we hear that Jesus already knew their thoughts. That says to us that nothing surprises him. Nothing grosses him out enough to stop loving us. We needn't worry because it's not about what comes out. It's about the one we give occupancy to that makes the difference, who fills us with incomparable light. Personally, I'm slowly becoming convinced that God needs less of my anxious effort to help me grow than I thought. Of course, we have a part in that. Right? There's room for rhythms and structures, like using this time before Easter as a community. But more than that, God might just need me to sit down and say, welcome. So as we enter this time before Easter, we're inviting one another to hand our hearts over to Jesus, to be turned inside out, to be emptied of clutter, to be emptied of evil, but more importantly, to be filled with his presence and light. And here's a few simple ways of doing that together. First, we're inviting one another in this season to read the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Pick a Gospel and read it from now until Easter. Just get around Jesus. Spend some time with Jesus and see what happens. Second, enter the silence in order to listen. You know, clutter and noise can have a deadly spread. So getting quiet helps us to listen. We could say less words, more a posture of welcome. 
And going with that, thirdly, ask to be filled with Jesus' Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Not to fill ourselves with clever ideas or work up a kind of of self-esteem, but ask to be filled with God's very own unending being. As Dave often says, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves.